Hi, I'm Emmy Award-winning TV reporter Mara Schiavocampo, joined by Pulitzer Prize winner Wesley Lowry and former senior magazine editor Keith Reed. This week, we're joined by the Griot's Natasha Alford, journalist and documentary filmmaker. Today on Run Tell This, the leader of the so-called Black Army on why his group is necessary and whether he's prepared to die for the cause. Plus, how we're coping with the trauma of seeing yet another Black man killed on video and our election night plans and predictions. Another day, another black man shot. Um, we saw protests in Philly Monday night after police killed a 27-year-old Walter Wallace, uh, apparently right in front of his mother. Uh, Wallace was waving a knife at officers when they fired about a dozen shots at him uh, at close range, and they killed him. And again, you know, there's a woman that's screaming in the video. I haven't seen confirmation of who she is, but Wallace's father said that his mother was on the scene. So um, I have to believe that that's who the woman was, which makes this all the more horrifying. So my initial reaction when, you know, you wake up and, and you see that there's a video of another black man being shot in the street like a dog um, was that I'm just, I'm just tired. I just don't want to look at it anymore. I don't want to look at it. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it. I want to play with my kids and pretend that life is okay. But I feel such a responsibility to bear witness um, to my brothers and sisters because I would want them to bear witness for me. So, Wes, you've covered so many of these on the ground. What's your reaction when you wake up in the morning and you see another one of these videos? Yeah, you know, so I, I've started to develop a, a bit of a routine on these for my own sanity. And part of it is I, I don't watch the video until or unless I'm writing directly on it. And so right now I'm currently deciding if I'm gonna get on a train and pop up um, and be on the ground later this week. And if I do, I'll watch the video going. Now that doesn't mean I'm not following coverage and reading and seeing what's going on, but there is something particular about kind of the trauma and the choice to watch a video where I know, I know what happens in the video. I don't need to see it. I know what happens. Um, and, and so I try to be careful about that. But what I also say is I think that there's a, it's the, it's the torture of the rep, repetition, right? We talk a lot about how one of the main differences between 2014 and today is how many more, how many additional white people now believe that there's a systemic problem, there's a depth to the problem, that this isn't just a bunch of rogue bad Apple actors and body cameras and, well, okay, there's something broken about policing. And I think that for me, as someone who kind of came to that journalistic conclusion pretty early in my reporting, uh, it, it's, it, I don't wanna say frustrating, but it can be exhausting to watch folks catch up to conversations that have happened previously, right? So for example, in this case, um, the way deadly force is used against people who have knives or what they call edged weapons of any sort um, is a major policy debate within policing and something that is clear and obvious. The way that police are trained as it relates to this is that if you're within 21 feet, deadly force is justified. And so you end up seeing cases like this. And that goes back, by the way, to sort of non-specific police science where a training officer in Salt Lake City was asked, how close do I have to let a guy with a knife get to me? And so him and the, 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 his students went out back and had one cop run at another cop to see how long it would take to, you know, it's not science, even close to it. And yet a whole generation, two generations of police officers have been trained this way versus if the training was a little bit different or half a step different, um, it might change the way they behaved in these circumstances. And so again, when something like this happens, 
you know, I think about, I'm unsurprised, three people get shot and killed by the police in America every single day, right? That in fact, the it's relatively rare given the number of shootings, how often one actually breaks into the headlines, we pay attention and very often it's because video exists. But the questions we face today, the circumstances happening today are not particularly different than the same conversations we've been having year in and year out. And as often, as much as I can be, as much as I try to insist it's important for us to recognize the things that have changed and moved over these years, because they are real and they exist, and I, I wouldn't rob the people who've sacrificed and worked at that of those achievements, it, days like this can be a reminder of when you speak about the big structural systemic changes that people are calling for, how far away we are from that. So then, Natasha, does does something like you know, this happens, it feels like it's happening so often now. And it's not that it's happening more often, it's that it's being captured and it's being paid attention to more often. But because we're paying attention to it more often, do you think this leads to more apathy? Or do you think it leads to more support for restructuring the system and defunding police and restructuring policing in this country? That's a great question. I think there's a psychological price that we pay when we watch um, these murders, uh, lynchings in some cases. And um, I, for one, I didn't watch the video because like Wes said, I don't really need to know <laughs> you people described it, you know, I, I heard some of the audio, like, I don't need to see it. Um, I have a catalog of death kind of in my mind uh, that I've seen over the years in covering this. Um, but yeah, I think one of the, the costs of this is that people also sort of accept the oppression in a way. Like I've seen a lot of comments about, well, he had a knife you know, and a lot of defense of police. And it's coming from, some of them are trolls and bots who are not black people, um, but some of them are black people. And I think that that's a coping mechanism. You know, we've learned to cope in the same way that we give the talk to our children to protect them in this racist society. People um, are almost justifying the police's actions and, and not, uh, you know, losing sight of the injustice because it happens so much. That's not everyone, but I do see a lot of people who, again, are um, justifying what the police did. And the one video that I have never forgotten uh, is actually a white man. He's 18 at the time who was accused of murdering three people. His name is Matthew Thomas Bernard of Keeling, Virginia. And you just have to Google this video because it's wild. He attacks police officers. He's running around naked. So clearly there's, there's a mental health issue there, but he literally attacks police officers multiple times and they take him alive. And so my question is, why is it in America that you know white people can be taken alive um, after committing acts of murder, and you know we black people are not uh, given that same standard. Uh, there's no de-escalation. There's no sense that our lives are worth preserving. Uh, that we deserve that opportunity to stand in court. We're just we're we're killed in those moments, and so. Um, yeah, there's no justification for me, but I do understand why people sort of get tired and revert to um, explaining and justifying, uh, you know, what what's happening. Yeah, so I, I've seen some of those responses today, too. I haven't seen the video. I won't watch the video. I stopped watching these videos a long time ago. Um, actually, it's been. It's been 
seven years since I since I've actually watched video footage, and and the reason I know that is because the day uh, the the verdict came down in the case of George Zimmerman having killed Trayvon Martin was the day my mother passed away. And there was coverage on in in hospice where she where she was um, that evening, and I didn't know I didn't want my mother to hear the verdict um, as one of the final things that that she heard. And, and and since that point, I've been very very meticulous about what I've allowed myself to consume in terms of uh, the voyeurism around black death at the hands of of police or just in general um but i do understand how how it is some people come to the conclusion natasha that you that you talked about i think that there is a school of thought that that allows people to convince themselves that if this homicide was justified that if this person would simply have behaved in a certain regard then it gives them the confidence. It gives the individual who holds that opinion the confidence to believe that that would never happen to me. Because then it takes the control of the situation away from the officer and puts it squarely in your hands. In other words, I would never behave the way that person with a knife or the way that person running around naked or the way that person who, who you know said he had his hands up or whatever the case is. I would never behave the way that person did. And therefore, if I don't behave the way that person did, there's no way this can happen to me because all I have to do is govern my own behavior. What we know is that the armed person with the force of law <laughs> behind him is always the person controlling the situation. It is not the civilian. It is not the person who's pulled over on the side of the road. It is not the person who's a suspect who's in control of the situation. And in fact, officers are trained that, and I'm speaking broadly, not to a specific policy, but we know that police officers are trained that it is their job to first and foremost get control of any situation when they arrive on the scene on the scene of a call. There's nothing you can do as an individual to protect yourself by way of your own behavior. Something that I definitely should consider because I force myself to watch because I think if police were shooting me in the street like a dog, I would want the world to see it. Um, but there is such a tremendous cost to all of us. And is it necessary when you know exactly what the outcome is? Do I need to see a mother screaming at the moment that her son is shot dead in the street? Um, and the answer to that is probably no. So you guys Well, well me- I think it depends on where, on where you are. Um, I, I go back some years to when my oldest son um, one day came home and and we were having a conversation around these these topics um and he didn't know who emmett till was i think he was 12. he had never heard he didn't know who emmett till was and i sat him down and i had and i explained to him and who emmett till was and that lesson included looking at the photo of emmett till in the casket which was intentionally traumatic on my part and showing that to a 12-year-old boy, but he needed to understand since he had this curiosity about where my emotions came from with regard to these things because he grew up in a totally different environment than I did. Um, but he but he also needed to understand in a very clear way, which meant visually, 
what the legacy was of uh, racist violence against people who looked like him in this in this country. Now, if you're a 12 year old boy, that's going to be traumatic. It's going to impart a lesson and it's probably hopefully your introduction to that sort of to, to that kind of thing. That doesn't mean that I need to sit you down at 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and every year send you a text of the body of Emmett Till lying on, on, on display, right? Because at a certain point, the trauma becomes <laughs> the trauma becomes the point and the lesson gets lost. And so I think for, for those of us who are who have been around long enough and who have seen this thing over and over and over again, I don't need to see Emmett Till's body again right to to take the lesson from it i don't think anybody else here needs to see emmett till or trayvon martin or mike brown or or george floyd lying down calling screaming for his mother with as, as he can't breathe those uh, we don't need to see that again because we've seen it so many times but i do think that there are still people unfortunately in this country who do need to see it I want to bring in our guest now. He has some very strong views on addressing systemic racism. John Fitzgerald Johnson, also known as Grandmaster J, is the founder and leader of the Black Armed Militia Group NFAC, the Not Fucking Around Coalition. Yes, that's their name. He won't reveal how many members they have, but over the last few months, they've shown some pretty impressive numbers in public and drawn a lot of attention, as you can imagine, dozens of armed black men would. So tell me about your group. It's been called a black militia. You told me on the phone you don't like that comparison. Why did you create this group? It's not that we don't like the comparison to a militia. It's the fact that people think that that's all we are is a militia and by definition we are not we're a self-reflective response of the black community to continued human rights violations and so forth that we're the subject of within the united states and globally so what has happened is a coalition is formed a coalition of like-minded individuals not your radical types not your left or your right but just average citizens of multiple countries some of us are veterans some of us are taxpayers, some of us are homeowners. We're, we're your citizens and we formed an organized militant response to address some of the grievances that we have with our government, our judicial system, no general quality and way of life. When we've seen videos of the organization together, I work at the GRIO, and a lot of our audience responds positively with pride. Um, you know, uh, saying that they they feel a sense of protection uh, when they see your presence. Um, can you talk about what that reception means to you when you know communities are are seeing you and responding positively and thanking you? Are are there other sort of reactions that that kind of motivate you to keep doing this work? We're not motivated by reactions. We're not motivated by emotions. We're not doing this for praise or clout. We're doing it because there's been a gulf in our community ever since the demise of the Black Panthers and the Deacons of Defense. Even though there have been some startup efforts, there has not been one massive unifying collaborative effort in spite of our differences to speak to the unifying threats that we see continuously across this country. So we're not doing it for a reaction. We are the reaction. People's statements to us like, I've never felt this safe around Black people. People say it's about time. My favorite one is when I get phone calls from people in their 70s and their 80s. They say, I've been waiting my whole life for this, and I'll be damned if I'm not going to have some fun with it before I go. I'm so proud 
to see us finally stand up in any way, shape, form, or fashion. So yes, it is inspiring. So to see this particular element manifest itself in our current environment does give our people a sense of hope, not pride, hope. So I've got, I've got two questions. And, and the, the first is, and forgive me, this is a, a simple question, but I think for some of our listeners who might not have followed all the coverage, you know, I wanna make sure we cover all the bases. What is that blueprint? What is it you all are out there doing when you get together? And what's your theory of change? What do you believe the problem is? And, and how are your actions solving it? You know, I'll be honest with you since we're being transparent. I'm constantly offended when people tend to ask that question of this organization, but never ask that question of the white organization. Never questions the 500 militia in this country. Doesn't question why they're together, who got them together, how long they're going to be together. Maybe they'll get together next week. What's driving them to get together? Who drove them to get together? Nobody asked them zero. Yet the minute that the descendants of slavery or those folks who consider themselves to be oppressed in this country organized themselves and exercised the same constitutional rights, here comes this magnifying glass. You want to know the who, what, where, when, and why. You don't ask them, so you have no answers from them. So you get no answers from us. So the, but that leads me exactly to the second question I was going to ask. And, and that question is what we know in history. Uh, when we look at the Panthers, when we look at other, other such movements, those movements have, you, you noted that you don't do what you do for reaction. But a reaction will come, uh, right? That, that we see many of the Second Amendment laws, many of the gun control laws we see to this day were a response to black men and black women showing up with firearms. And suddenly, Governor Reagan in California had different views on who should have guns and where they should be allowed to have. Do you, knowing the way that blackness operates in the United States of America, knowing the stereotypes and prejudice, the fear that people have of black men and black women, do you worry at all about playing into those things or increasing those things, or do you not care? I, I, I like the way you just simply went around the other way to knock on the same door. Very good. I should practice Got to ask the questions, man. A bit about the racist origins of gun control in America and the fact that when systemic racism is shouted out, there are those who say it doesn't exist, but as you just so eloquently illustrated, it is an animal that is comprised of legally existing parts to form an illegally administered system. So, you know, before the Civil War ended, we had the slave code that prohibited uh, slaves from owning guns. And then after President Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, we had the 13th Amendment. And then, of course, the Civil War ended. Then we had the Black Code. As a matter of fact, all of gun control in the United States spins directly out of the white man's prevention of blacks from having guns. Well, let's examine that for two seconds. Let's go ahead and peel that back. At the core of the entire deal, it doesn't make a difference whether we're talking about gun ownership. Doesn't mean it doesn't matter whether we're talking about land ownership. Doesn't mean whether or not we're talking about a majority political control ownership. There is a, an, an, a systemic desire to avoid retribution for 246 years of slavery, enslaving of these people. These people have never been slaves, but they're living in the aftermath. And then they see a bunch of people who are benefiting from slavery also. We don't tend to want to acknowledge the fact that we're still playing a game of monopoly with all of the money not even redistributed like it should be. And then we're also looking at a community of folks that have always been stigmatized. People have been brainwashed and socialized to believe when you see a black person with a gun, a 
no. But if a white person has a gun, they're a patriot. They're standing up for their rights in our formations. If you notice, we never called them marches. We never called them protests. We never called them demonstrations. They are what they are. They are a formation of a military structure. Now, they can be for many different reasons. For instance, going down to, to Brunswick, Georgia, to ensure that the McMichaels were put into custody. That was a tactical mission. Going up to Stone Mountain was to answer a threat that was made against all black folks for the 4th of July. It didn't have, it had nothing to do with the Confederate statue. It is there where the Klan was reborn. It is there where they normally met. So we went to meet them, but they weren't there. When we went into Louisville, that was more so diplomatic. It was to put pressure on the government and get some transparency into the Breonna Taylor case. And then going down to Lafayette, which was originally supposed to be a good show of unity, along with the NAACP, the ACLU, and all the good folks in Lafayette, Louisiana, until we were threatened by Clay Higgins. Uh, Representative Clay Higgins, he said he killed me and 10 of my friends and had my mama weeping, and so I just couldn't resist the invitation. So of course, we went down there to see if the good uh, congressman was gonna make good on that threat. Of course, he did not. Most folks are not aware of some of the hurdles and the obstacles that we face going into cities like Lafayette, things that were unconstitutional, that they thought we were not smart enough to cite those cases and let them know that this has already been decided by the Supreme Court. You can't do that to us. We're not your mama's Negroes, so to speak. We're the new breed. We're, we're, we're the upgrade. Do you worry about an inevitability of violence? That that's eventually you're going to show up at Stone Mountain and they're going to be there. And they're going to have, you know, you know that, that when you draw a line in the sand and say, this is what we're not putting up with, and we're prepared to stand up for ourselves, eventually someone's going to walk, take the foot across the line. Do you worry about that at all? Let me be clear. For some strange reason, your vernacular is infected with the word worry. We're going to inoculate that right now. And I've given you one shot, I'll give you another. We're not worried about anything. However, let me tell you this, don't let my pleasant disposition fool you about the, um, the seriousness of our resolve. We're not carrying those guns for show. And when we went to Stone Mountain, we were hoping they were going to be there. You all don't seem to understand something about the NFAC. We haven't broken one law. No one has destroyed a piece of property. Not one of us has ever been arrested. We, have not, we, haven't, we haven't gotten into any type of legal trouble. We've done everything by the book. Even when we go in cities, we comply with all of the requirements that the government lays down for us because no one has ever fired a shot at us. And I make it crystal clear, and this is no secret, anyone that does will incur the entire response of the entire element that is there. That has not happened yet. Are we worried about it? No. Do we hope that it, that it happens? No, we don't. But if it does, it will be the response. It will not be the initiation. We're not anti-government. We're defending our people. That's it. No more, no less. But to be clear, you're prepared for the possibility of a violent armed confrontation. Whether the enemies are foreign or domestic. We're more than prepared, and I'm going to reiterate this one more time, but we're not stupid. We know exactly what we're doing, and we've learned our lessons from history. So no, we're not going to initiate anything, but anyone 
that aggresses us will be met with the full force of everything you see out there. So then are you prepared to die on the battlefield, so to speak? I took an oath to defend this country against all enemies, foreign and domestic. I gave my life for 18 years to this country. So yes, if I was prepared to die before I knew that term, you best believe I'm prepared to die so that you and your children can have a future. Grandmaster Jay, um, we've heard Donald Trump tell Proud Boys to stand back and stand by. He's uh, not so subtly hinted at voter intimidation. Um, just kind of uh, thinking about Black people going to the polls and the suppression that we may face or the intimidation that we may face, what, what would you like to see happen to protect our vote? This is whether it's connected to the organization or- First of all, I think, I think that, yeah, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. First of all, I think that everybody needs to climb down out of their emotional tree and remember that it is against federal law to show up at a voting place with weapons and intimidate anybody. If the United States government doesn't want to enforce that law against people that, that doesn't look like us, they're not going to enforce it against us. We have no intentions of starting a, a conflagration or a firefight over this vote. You really don't know how disenfranchised we are about this entire election process. We're not standing by waiting to fight somebody over Biden or over your right to elect uh, a what's his face again, whose name I will be, he, he who shall remain nameless. That's not gonna happen. That's never been our mission. If the Proud Boys or anybody else chooses to go to the polls and intimidate people when it's against federal law and the US government doesn't do anything, that's their business. But if they kill one of us, it has nothing to do with polling. As I said before, you attack us and then we will respond. I see you have Malcolm X's photo behind you. What would you say to those who have the, the Martin Luther King approach? who say that this is not the way, that if black people show up armed in the streets, they're going to lose that fight every day, that, that there is a path to what you're talking about, but this is not the way. What would your response to that be? My response to them is that they need to go and read the rest of history and stop falling for that, that, that what I call the cookie cutter excuse for being a coward. Martin Luther King did say in 1963 that he had a dream, but then in 1968 in an NBC interview, he said, that he felt that that dream had become a nightmare and that we had integrated into a burning house. And they killed him right after that. So I would tell them, go brush up on your MLK before you throw MLK at me. And only a coward would sit there in the face of the continued injustices against us and not think it common sense to defend oneself. It doesn't mean go out in a blaze of glory when you know you're outnumbered. It means stand your ground because power respects power. And until we as a people begin to embrace that, we'll never ever rise out of being nothing more than the free descendants of slaves who are guests in a country that accommodates us, placates us, but doesn't want us here. Aside from, from, your, from, from the purpose of your group being defending self-defense, being defending African-Americans, defending people who look like you against violent uh, attack, does your group have political aims? One of the one of the important things I think you you noted earlier, you talked about uh, being uh, being sort of an intellectual descendant of the Black Panthers. Is that the Panthers were not only about self defense, but the Panthers also had very specific social and political aims. 
You simplified a very complicated issue. As a former presidential candidate myself, I have a very distinct platform, but I don't ask everyone that's a member of this militia to adhere to it. We just simply ask that you just be black. With regards to a political platform, the NFAC has no declared platform because of the simple fact that you asked, and I, and I don't think you caught this earlier, is that our stated goal, and I've said this publicly, and I'm pretty sure if you've done your research, you're pretty much aware of this. Our ultimate long-term goal is the creation of an ethno-nation outside of the United States. That would be a place for the ADOS who didn't want to stay here anymore to help build our own. So it's not so much our focus on any type of political platform that will be implemented here in the United States. Was there a moment for you, you talked about how you spent 18 years in the armed forces defending this country. Um, what was the moment for you where you chose this path? Almost 60 years of living as a black man in America, finally watching us begin to go backwards into eras that a lot of you all are too young to remember. Are you 60? Don't let the melanin fool you. He's black. I mean, black don't crack. <laughs> I, I, I did think you were like 35. I'll, I'll give more of that. I don't believe it. <laughs> okay, sorry, you just totally. <laughs> Kind of hard to believe, but we'll focus, though. We'll okay, focus. sorry. We're, we're back focused again, but you are goals. You are goals. Okay, please continue, sir. Seeing things beginning to happen that I thought had long passed away, seeing the resurgence of the Lynch era as I remember it, starting to see the blatant racism, not by police officers, but by average citizens toward people who are minding their own business. These began to remind me of a time when I was too young to do anything about it. And then starting back, you can go back to the, you know, the usual suspects. You've got your Mike Brown, your Tamir Rice, you got all, you got your Emmanuel Nine, your Walter Scott. You got all these things letting us know, here we go, this is round three. The only difference this time is that I represent a consensus of people who feel like, you know what they didn't do back then? We're gonna do it this time if given the opportunity the resources and the chance. And COVID-19 and the quarantine gave us the chance to congeal, to come together, to talk without any distractions. We all came out of the quarantine thinking the only thing that we would have to contend with is a job and not getting sick. But instead, what we found out was that while we were in the house getting our black power recharged, there were some other folks inside blowing off the dust on their clan roads. And they just thought that, hey, this is it for us. Everybody came out the house ready to go back to what they like to do. And for some of them, it was good old-fashioned racism. What they didn't realize was some of us was ready to get back to good old-fashioned 1965 anti-racism. Does that even the score? Does reparations address the issue and you pack up and go home and, and problem solve? Nothing will ever even the score for the injustices done against our people for 400 years. The reparations are owed for 246 years of free labor, for the rape, robbery, destruction of an entire people, and then not even so much as a formal apology from those who administered the, the Portuguese slave trade or the Atlantic slave trade and every business that's in America today that knows that it started on the backbones of slaves financially. That includes school, scholastic organizations, businesses everywhere. Everybody smiling in our face and telling us it's okay. You know, we're all with you. No, you're not. Because even though you gave us 
physical freedom to sit beside you on a lunch counter. You didn't give us political freedom. You didn't give us economical freedom. You didn't redistribute the wealth. You didn't go back and honor all the treaties that you never honored at the end of the Civil War. As a matter of fact, you want us to walk around in kumbaya like it's all good while you holding all the chips. So reparations is a start. That is the material apology. Nobody questions the reparations for the Jews. Nobody questions the reparations for the Japanese that were interned. Nobody questions reparations for Native Americans. Why do people question reparations? for the worst Holocaust that ever happened. What about the name NFAC? What does it mean and, and why did you decide on that name? I'm, I'm not going to use profanity on your show, but it, you know exactly what it stands for. You're, not you're welcome to use profanity. We curse all the time. I'm not going to do that because people tend to take every word that I say and take, well, take okay, it. Okay, well then I want to fact check because we're reporting it as the Not Fucking Around Coalition. Is that accurate? Years, it's the Not Fucking Around Coalition and here's why. And I've said this before, it reflects our mindset. We're not fucking around with judicial systems that let us down. We're not fucking around with the police system that came from the slave control and tends to think that it's still that way. We're not fucking around with a lot of the conditions that are continue to exist within our communities that do nothing to protect or move us forward. The bottom line is we're not fucking around with the status quo anymore. And we're going to change it one way or the other. All right. Thank you for your time, Grandmaster Jay. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Have a great evening. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, our election night plans who will be working and who will be drinking? <laughs> Hey guys, Mara here. Your support means a lot. Please make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at runtellthis underscore at runtellthis underscore and be sure to rate and review this podcast. Five stars, please. We are uh, days away from the election. The middle of the storm always feels the worst. And sometimes things look a little better in hindsight. And I'm hoping that that's the case here. I feel like we're facing one of the biggest challenges to our democracy in modern history, if not ever, because we have all of these initiatives that have been put in place to allow people to vote by mail because of a pandemic. And now we have all of these court challenges throughout the country, particularly in battleground states, to counting those ballots. So there's a very good chance that this election will be decided by the courts at a time where we have a Supreme Court justice who was just confirmed by a president who said to her, I expect you to make decisions about the election results and where she refused to say whether or not she would recuse herself if that came before the bench. Like what kind of fucking constitutional shit show are we looking at? I mean, this idea that Kavanaugh could say something like, you know, the district court is changing the state's rules too close to an election at a time when we're in a pandemic and we're all we're all trying to cope, right? Or that uh, there was enough time to address health concerns about COVID in the election. You know, as if this is not some sort of exceptional otherworldly like time that we're living through. It just goes to show that they're trying to draw a line in the sand that, um, you know, disenfranchises people, that does not uh, make it easier for people to exercise their rights. Um, when we're literally fighting for our lives, like it, it's just terrifying to me. So I live in, in Pittsburgh and in the county that I live in, Allegheny County, there were 28,000 ballots that were sent out 
by a company out of Ohio that were erroneous, that had that had the wrong information on the ballot. Um, that company, by the way, uh, happened there. There happens to be a, a good number of pictures of the headquarters of that company with a Trump Make America Great Again flag <laughs> hanging. This is the company that printed the ballots <laughs> that were mailed out to the voters in a in a critical county in a swing state. Right. Um, and one of those erroneous ballots found found its way into my mailbox. OK. Um, so. To, to answer to answer your question, Mar, is it as bad as we as we think? Yes, it's as bad as we think. Yes, it's, it's as bad as, as we're experiencing. And I think one of the, one of the things that that happens, right, is because. Um, we've we've gone through so much in the last four years of, you know, this administration making a point of eroding the institutions in the country. Right. And not only eroding the institutions in the country, but then eroding the trust in in those institutions. So so there's been a pointed effort made to undermine just public, just just basic public trust that if I vote, my vote counted. Right. And so when you see things that start to happen, like, you know, ballots getting mailed out to the, to the wrong place, which in any other election cycle might have been explained away as this was a mere printing error. Uh, in this election, it becomes, well, now do I know that my vote counted because I got one ballot that said one thing and then I got another ballot that said another thing. And then you go to turn in the ballot and they've got one line that says that, you know, one line where you go here to vote and another line where you go here to drop you. So there's all these things going on that in other election cycles would have been um would I don't want to say normal, but would have been just written off as like margin of error sort sorts of happenings. And in this election, you have no idea, and a lot of voters have simply have have lost confidence in whether or not the in, in whether or not the actual process will work. Right when the election wound up in the Supreme Court in two thousand, it wasn't because nobody expected that. Right, it, it, there was no lead up to to you know. Like people weren't on the lookout for hanging chads in these in those kinds of things. It was it was just simply a matter of like the election was very close in some places, and there were re and there were recounts, uh, and then it en and then it ended up in the court, which is very different from what's happening today. Today it is this all appears right. It's very easy to believe that this is all happening by design. We're taping a special episode on the 4th, not the 3rd. We normally tape on Tuesdays. So we're taping on Wednesday. When we tape, will we know who the next president-elect is? Uh, well, we cer certainly won't be official. I certainly don't think it'll be called. I, I think that, you, you know, look, I, what I've always said is I think one of two things happens. Either it's a Biden blowout or it's close and it's Trump. I think any, if it's in any margin of error, it's Trump. Because he's got the courts, he's got the Supremes, he's, he's taken all these steps in various places, right, that the, that it's either Biden runs up the score so far that that they can call Georgia on day one and it's blue. And we're like, all right, we know what, where, where this is good. Where South Carolina, where Lindsey Graham gets blown out by 10 points, we're like, all right, we, we know what this is, right? Now, do I think it'll be officially declared by the time we talk? Even if that's the case? No, I don't. 
I, I think we'll be looking at a map where it is pretty clear that barring, you know, an act of God where suddenly Trump's up in California, you know, where I think there's a way where some of these states will could show us what might happen. I think if it's a close race, uh, I think if you got a few states, be it uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, a Pennsylvania, a Florida, uh, many of these states that have long histories of under normal circumstances having all types of complication with getting votes counted and, and processed. Uh, I think there's a world where you could have some extremely crucial states outstanding for a significant chunk of time. And, and I think that that, um, and, and I think that that, you know, if, if it's close, I think that's likely. What are you guys planning for election night? Like, I literally want to pass out. I want to take a Xanax and have a shot of gin at 5 p.m. And I want to wake up at 8 a.m. on Wednesday. I can't, my nerves cannot handle it. Do you guys have plans for election night? I made the mistake of like waiting. So I happened to be across the street from Trump in 2016 because he was at the Hilton and our office was right across the street at the Grio. And we stayed till 3 a.m. Just, you know, holding out to see and yeah, he, he gave his speech and I had to pass through a crowd of Trump supporters who were screaming and yelling to get home um, that late. So I will not be doing that this year. I think I will get my sleep. <laughs> like will you be able to go to sleep? Will you be able to sleep if we don't know what the, can you go to bed at 10 o'clock if we don't know what the result is? After after 2016, I think that's the best thing to do because I staying up was agonizing. Yeah, I couldn't in 16. I was up all night and and then went to the office at like 7 a.m. and just started trying to do something. Right. The I, I'm debating now. I was just having a talk with the editor today. I, I'm debating like deputizing myself and sending myself somewhere, like, like doing doing and doing one of the Senate races or doing you know like because I, I can't decide if I would rather have some level of work and writing to be doing or you know, is that if I'm going to find myself up at 2 a.m., I might as well be in some other state working on something <laughs> than, than pacing my living room. Where would you go? Where do you want to go? You know, if, if I would, I, one of the, either Alabama, Mississippi, I think both of the Senate races there are interesting, right? Doug Jones could lose, very likely will lose. And he was like this resistance hero. And so like the Dems could win the Senate and Doug Jones still get screwed. And so I might, that, that could be interesting. Mike Epsby is like, might be a black senator from Mississippi. That'd be crazy, right? Or, or might come really close to it. And that's interesting either way. What's the mood that night? Um, or, you know, if I was really had a, you know, there's also a world where it's Michigan and you go stand at one of these polling places and see what happens when these militia shows up. Um, and, and I think that no matter what happens on election day, I think so much of the coverage and so much of the conversation is going to be obsessed with obviously for, for completely legitimate reasons, who the president's going to be, right? And what happened to the Senate. But it's going to be important for us to consider, all right, this is the first time in generations that we might have seen armed people showing up at the polls, potentially suppress. Like, what does that mean? What does that say about our democracy in this moment? And who won or didn't win is irrelevant to that question, right? This is a threshold that we're potentially passing. And so there's a world where maybe I would go up, you know, I got family up in Detroit, maybe I'd go up there and, you know, just spend a full day in that scene, figuring out what's going on and trying to write something smart. But there's a nice disconnect when you're working. Yeah. You can remove yourself a little bit. It's the not working and being at home and watching the TV and having 10 shots. Keith, what's your plan? <laughs> so I actually do, actually do have a, um, a writing and editing assignment 
um for the for the night of the election so i'm kind of kind of going to kind of be on call just sort of watching what's going on nationally and and waiting for copy to come in and maybe jumping in and and kind of writing some stuff but the reality is that there's really not a place that you can escape um unless you plan on leaving the country and even if you leave the country unless you've left left the country permanently um you're going to have to come back to whatever the reality is we we all still have some stake in the outcome i don't remember feeling so in so invested um you know in in 2000 uh in 2004 it was a, it was a very different it was just a very different vibe right um we just i don't rem- i don't ever remember there being an there being an election that felt this weighty not even when uh not even when when president obama was running the first time around um we knew sort of that that there was this precipice of history but on the other side of that, it didn't quite feel like the country was was this close to going off a cliff, right? There was the economic malaise. We had just come. We we were we were teetering on the brink of of recession, and so there was there were fears about jobs and money and what was what was going to happen to the economy, and we sort of needed to save ourselves from from that, um, you know. And people sort of voted on you know who you thought best represented the the country's chance to move forward from what was happening economically. But um, this feels a lot different than that. This feels a, a whole lot different than that. Well, when you talk about not being able to leave, you know, where can you go where your heart is not American? And I think that's the the heartache of being black in this country is that essentially it's heartache. Um, kind of all of the other emotions that express themselves, whether it's anger and outrage and it in my opinion, it's all coming from a place of heartache. So what, what it's loving a country that doesn't love you back. And that's one of the reasons why why I've said when the when that particular conversation comes up as it relates to black men and voting, I think we need to be very careful about the flippant way in which that's being described as people who are, you know, so at, who are, who are who are either stupid or just you know, don't understand or whatever. Like, no, there's a there's a legitimate group of people who just don't feel who simply feel like this country is not speaking to them, does not value their lives, does not value their value their safety, and that that's not going to change regardless of who wins in this election. Yeah, so they're opting out. Um, well, TBD. We will see. Uh, hopefully, hopefully we have some hope in a week. Can I say one thing before we end cuz we ended on a on a really depressing note. I want to yes. end on a on a happier note. Let's. There's one team left in NFL that's 6 and 0. There's one team left and Wes is laughing cuz he's from Cleveland and he can't stand it. There's one team <laughs> left in the NFL. It is. That's yes. undefeated and it's the Pittsburgh Steelers. Now y'all take that. Y'all go out, you buy yourself a black and gold anything, you wear it this weekend. The Ravens are going to lose. It's going to be 7 and 0. We're on our way. That's is the that, happiest thing I can give to y'all before this conversation ends. I don't know nothing about what you're talking about. We we gonna bring you we gonna bring you on in. I'm gonna I'm gonna send you some merch. We gonna we gonna get you some we gonna get you some black and gold. I'm gonna get a terrible towel out to you. It's gonna be fantastic. Well, just I mean, if you can just teach me like how many innings are in the game, like then I'm, that'll be good. It's it's football. It's, it's quarters. That's first. Thank you very much. Good night. <laughs> Bye, <All right>. guys. <laughs> 
Hey, don't forget to subscribe and please leave us a five-star review. And the conversation continues on social media. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at runtellthis underscore. Check out new episodes every Wednesday. Runtell This is an independent production of Mara Scampo, Inc.